Good morning, everyone. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The scripture that we will be examining for today is Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, which can be found on page 595 um, uh, in the blue ESV Bibles, which are located in the back pocket seat cover of the seat that is in front of you. Um, as always, please know that those Bibles are for, to, are for you to use um, during the preaching of God's word, but they're also available for you to take home if you need one. Once again, we'll be reading Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, which says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Thus says God's word. Thank you, Raven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises of your word. Um, We thank you that all the promises of your word are yes and amen in Christ. And so, God, today we look to you. We look to you to instruct us. We look to you to um, teach us from your word as the great teacher of your people. And God, we pray that we would be quick to hear and that we would be quick to transform our lives through repentance, God, to to surrender our lives through repentance and and to be transformed by the work of your Holy Spirit. God, we pray that that, um, we would give attention God, to what is lacking and that we would, we would uh, shore ourselves up in faith, Lord God, uh, in, in clinging to the promise of your word, clinging to the truth of your gospel. So, Lord, we thank you for all of this. You are the great and awesome Lord, and we recognize that. Lord, I pray that you would just assist me. As I preach today that, that, God, you would make me able to do what I am otherwise unable to do, that that is to faithfully represent your word to your people. And so, God, I ask that you would just be with me today and, and um, God, strengthen uh, me in the preaching of your word. Lord, I, I pray more that uh, the people would hear and understand your word and that their hearts would be transformed in the light of it. And so we thank you for all of this. In the name of our Savior, our precious Lord Jesus Christ, amen. You can be seated. So we're in a series, and we're looking today at the second of the seven letters to the churches uh, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Last week we talked about the letter that was addressed to the church in Ephesus. Today we're talking about the letter that is addressed to the city of Smyrna. Now, um, Smyrna was a harbor city in what is now modern-day Turkey. Um, It was a beautiful city by Roman standards with paved streets. It had a 
library. Uh, it had a gymnasium. Um, it even had a shrine to the Greek writer Homer who was uh, possibly born there. We're not uh, actually sure. But it was mostly known in, in antiquity for its temple to the goddess Sibeli. And Sibeli was, uh, was the, the, the mother goddess of, of Smyrna. Um, they also had temples uh, for, for imperial cult worship, the worship of emperors um, to the Caesars Tiberius and Hadrian. Um, historians tell us that in Smyrna there was a small Jewish congregation with a synagogue, a Jewish presence. And this letter proves to us that there was also a small handful of Christian believers there as well. Now, we don't know anything about this church in Smyrna as we do other churches, especially the ones that are told about in, the, say, the book of Acts. We don't know when this church was planted. We don't know who planted it. We don't know when it was planted. But though the city was spiritually dark with all this pagan worship, all these pagan temples, um, the, the beautiful thing about it was that God had ordained that the light of the gospel was shining there in Smyrna, regardless of the darkness that seemed to be oppressing it from every other side. We talked about last week how Jesus represented himself as the one who walked among the golden lampstands and how those lampstands represented the seven churches that are the subject of the book of, or the, or the audience rather, of the book of Revelation. And, and what we learn from this, this letter, this brief letter to the, to the people of Smyrna, the Christians in Smyrna, is that Smyrna had a lampstand and that lampstand could not be extinguished as long as God preserved it. Now, the only information in the Bible, as I said, that we have about Smyrna at all, in fact, the only time the, the, the name Smyrna is used, um, the only thing we know about the city or the church in it, all of that is just found in Revelation here. Um, but we have enough information in these verses to make a composite sketch of what life in Smyrna must have been like for the believers in the city. So we know from the passage that Raven just read us, that the Christians in Smyrna were suffering persecution. And they were even living under the threat of martyrdom. The persecution that the, the, the people of Smyrna, the Christians in Smyrna were facing, came to them primarily from the small Jewish community there. Now, there may have also been some threats from the pagan majority population, but the pagans in this particular letter are not implicated by John or or, or, of course, Christ in the words of Revelation. So hostility from the Jews toward the growing band of Christian believers was a common occurrence in the first century, and this, this for a number of reasons. We see this all through the book of Acts. In fact, if you look at the history of Paul's missionary journeys, all the cities he went to where he proclaimed the gospel in the book of Acts, you're going to see a pattern. What he would almost always do is he would enter the city Synagogues, not the public square, not the marketplaces. He did do that in places, but his general his general mode was to enter the synagogue and proclaim Christ in each city. 
Now, when he did this, some of the Jews of the city would become believers. They would believe. They were a minority, but they would become disciples of Christ. But the others among the Jews would reject the message and act completely hostily towards it. Now, these Jews would either, as a result, oftentimes either directly attack Paul. Many things happened to him. For once, he was uh, he was uh, literally dragged to the outside of the city, stoned, left for dead, and uh, after which he crawled his way back into the city and kept preaching. That is the way you do it. That's the way you preach when they try to kill you and and hit you with rocks and you just keep on going. That's that's he's kind of the energizer buddy of the of the gospel in that in that regard. Um, and, and this this uh, this happened all the time. So uh, you know sometimes they directly attack him. Sometimes they would stir up the crowds in the city against Paul and his message. And this happened over and over again, several times during the missionary journeys that are listed between Acts 13 and Acts 20. Now occasionally, Paul also faced hostility from pagans in, in pagan places as well. This happened to him in Philippi and Athens and in, in Ephesus, to name a few places. Um, the hostility from the Jews, which is our focus today, originated in the fact that they had, the Jews had rejected the gospel that had been presented to them by Paul or by John or by others of the apostles. They rejected Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah and they saw this, this Christian influence, this new sect of believers. They saw them as enemies of Moses and of all the traditions of the fathers. And so while the Jews rejected the message of the risen Christ, the number of Gentile believers began to swell. And so there, there was this, this new emphasis among the people of God that, that where the, all the nations were coming in and the Gentiles were beginning to believe in Christ. And this fact alone also did not sit well with the resistant Jews. See, Gentiles in the first century were considered unclean. They were, they were undesirable. They were not the kind of people you wanted to welcome into the covenant. And that's exactly what God was doing through the gospel. He was opening up the, 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 the people of God, the definition, the boundary of the people of God to people from every nation, not just the Jewish nation. And so our letter begins, Jesus is identifying himself and that these are his words and he says in Revelation 2.8, he says these are the words of the first and the last. Now, Christ is here reaffirming his title as the first and last. If you look back to chapter 1 verse 17, you'll see that he identified himself this way when he first uh, revealed himself to John. And this title of Christ, the first and the last, is also going to be used again in chapter 22 verse 13. So three times in the book of Revelation, Christ identifies himself as the first and the last. This is similar to the title that he uses in other places in Revelation, the Alpha and the Omega, or the way we'd say it in English, the A to Z. It's a very significant meaning to say that Christ is the first and the last. It's multifaceted. This title, as I said, is repeated three times in the book of Revelation. I am the first, I am the last. And this is interesting because if you were to flip back to the Old Testament, before the incarnation of the Son, before Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem, you would find that Yahweh God, the, the triune God declares of himself that he is the first and the last 
three times in the book of Isaiah. So when Christ comes to John with these visions and he says, I am the first and the last, what is it that Christ is saying? Well, first of all, you can't avoid this. Christ is asserting in this passage that he is God. Now, one thing that oftentimes enemies of the gospel, enemies of of Jesus will say often is that Jesus never explicitly said in the scriptures that he is God. That is the easy easiest argument of, of atheists or, or unbelievers to argue because he says it over and over and over again in the Gospels. And then here, by saying, I am the first and the last, he is identify him, identifying himself directly with Yahweh God. He's saying, I am God. That's the first thing. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's of the same essence as the Father and the Spirit. And moreover, beyond just being God, he's claiming to be eternal. Eternal. He's saying that I was the one who, and, uh, who was present at the beginning. I am the first. And also, he's saying, guess what? I'm the one who's going to exist forevermore. I am the last. This title is somewhat synonymous with this, this idea, the, what the name Yahweh actually means, the self-revealing God that I am that I am. He's like, there's nothing, there's no place or time or existence where you cannot find me. I am the first and I am the last. But then he even clarifies his use of this term in the last half of verse 8 when he says, I am the first and the last who died and came to life. First and last not only points to the fact that Christ is eternal as to his divine nature, but but it points to something more about his human nature for all who believe in him. And we find the explanation of what that something is that it says about his human nature if you look at Colossians chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, turn there. Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to look at verse 18. And I want you to see this. This is this glorious passage in Colossians chapter 1 where, where Paul is just exulting in the, in the person of Jesus Christ and telling us over and over in, in different ways who he is. This is what he says, verse 18. He says, and he, this is speaking of Christ, he is the head head of the body, of the church. He is the beginning. Now that kind of sounds like the first, doesn't it? He is the beginning. Now watch this. The firstborn from the dead. That in everything, he might be preeminent. So see what, what Jesus is saying when he says, I'm the first and the last, he's saying as the first, as Christ as death's conqueror was the first to rise from the dead in a body that was glorified. It was a perfect blending of the material with the spiritual. And others in Scripture, we know this, in the Old and New Testament, other people in the Bible were raised from the dead. They were resurrected. But but the difference was that when they were raised, they were raised in a body that was still subject to disease. It was still subject to death. But, but And it was a body that eventually returned to death. It returned to decay. But not Christ. Christ was raised to a new kind of life. And and the promise is that He will never see death again. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption, is what the psalmist said. 
And as to the last, Christ represents, this is so good for you, believer. If you're a believer, I don't know how you don't just blow up on this point. But it's the truth. As the last, Christ is saying, I represent the last death of the old kind for anyone who believes in me. I'm the last one. See, Christ died under the penalty of sin. Now, of course, in his case, it wasn't his own sin, but he died the same way as people since Adam had died. But now, because he died as a substitute for everyone who looks to him for salvation, all who belong to him will be be raised in power, who will be glorified just as he was. For you, Christian, for you, believer, for you, follower and disciple of Christ, death is dead. It has no more power at all. It's been completely declawed and defanged for you. When you rise, you will rise. Rise like Christ. And the reality of Christ's resurrection is what makes everything else that comes after in this letter more meaningful. Both to the Smyrnans, that's a weird word, isn't it? Both to the Smyrnans who first received this letter and to all of us who read it today and, 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 and who live in a scary world that's filled with hardship and trouble and persecution and loss. Listen to what he says, verse 9. He says, this is Christ speaking and he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. What is Jesus saying here? This, this is such a comforting thought. And I, I'll, I'll, I'll distill it to two words. I don't know where you all are this morning. I don't know in all of the aspects of your life, the many facets, I don't know where you are. But let me tell you something. Jesus knows And that is a comforting thought that over and over in these letters to the seven churches, Jesus always begins by saying, I know. And there is great comfort to be taken in that. Jesus knows. He is never caught unaware. Jesus never turns a blind eye to the suffering of His people. He sees and He knows every single thing we face. Jesus now with the people of Smyrna, He sees the trouble they are in. Why? Because He walks among the lampstands. Jesus hasn't just set up the lampstands which represent His church and His specific local churches and just forgotten them. The Bible says He walks among them. He's walking among the lampstands and the light of His glory shines in the darkest pits. They, they're they not only noticed, it's not just that He sees and acknowledges the, the people that are suffering in Smyrna, but they can take comfort at the fact that Jesus is present with them. Not just watching as a casual observer, but walking among them. Do you remember the story in Daniel of the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the king had set up this idol and and they wouldn't bow down to it. So the king fired up his furnace and threw them in it to destroy them as a punishment for their uh, for their insolence of not not uh, bowing before the idol. And what happens? He stands up in shock and in horror because when he looks down, he counts on his fingers. I put one, two, three guys in there, and now. Now I see four. And the fourth guy I see in that fire looks like a son of the gods. And who do you think that was walking with those guys in the fire? 
Jesus is always with us no matter what the tribulation is. And, and more than that, there's a glorious truth that's kind of tucked in a, a set of parentheses in this passage, and that is that what seems like tribulation and poverty for those of us who believe is really only an illusion. This is how Paul puts it. 2 Corinthians 4, go ahead and look that up. 2 Corinthians 4, and we're going to begin in verse 17. Paul has listed, in both of the books of uh, Corinthians, he's listed some terrible, terrible persecutions and rejection and things that he faced. More than I, I would venture to say most of us will ever face in this life. And listen to what he calls them. He says, for this light, momentary affliction. Now, I, I'm going to just take a huge risk of being real honest with you today. Sometimes I can go through really small frustrations and the way I cry out to God is though I was being thrown into the Colosseum with lions and gladiators. But, but Paul has just listed all the terrible persecutions, the imprisonment, the beatings, the wild animals, all this stuff, and he calls it a light and momentary affliction. Why? Because of this next, this next fact. He says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What Paul is crying out to us in this verse is no matter what it is that you are shouldering right now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the glory that will be revealed in you is going to cause all of that to be dissolved in a, in a, in a flash of the glory of God. That's what he's saying. He uses this word from the, from the old Hebrew kabod. He's talking about God's glory, not as just brightness or light, but as weight. It's something that has substance. It's something that, that causes uh, us to, be, to, to, to feel it, if you want to put it that way. It's, it's working for us. An eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. I am convinced that most of my trouble in this life is by what I see. By the things I choose to see instead of focusing my gaze on the things that are unseen. Paul says that the things that are seen are transient you know what that word means? It means they're passing. They're just, they're just rolling through town. What do we call uh, homeless people who just move from town to town? They're transients. And that's what he's saying our problems are. Our problems are homeless. They're just transient. They can't make a home with us. Christ has already redeemed us from all that. So they just pass through town. But the things that are unseen... This weight of glory, the promises of Scripture, the resurrection that is to come, the things that are unseen, Paul says, these are the things that are eternal. And if you really believe that, it'll really mess with your perspective, won't it? It really will. And see, the struggle for us as believers is to actually believe that. It's amazing that we call ourselves believers and how little we actually believe. So, Paul says, or John says, to, in the words of Christ, he says, I know your poverty, I know your tribulation, but you are rich. And what he's saying is that in reality, their suffering was regarded by the Lord Jesus, as he saw it with perfect perspective, as wealth. 
Their suffering was their wealth. Part of the reason for this encouraging letter was to get them to see that reality. And this is hard, isn't it? It's hard. We've all been there to one degree or another. Let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer it. Just think about it. Have you ever gone through something in your life that was so incredibly hard that you literally thought you wouldn't survive it? Physically, emotionally, whatever it was, you thought you wouldn't survive. And only to find out now, several years maybe down the road, several decades for some of you down the road, that you wouldn't trade that hard period for anything because of the blessing and the character that resulted in Christ. Anybody? Anybody? Revelation verse 9 goes on. It says, I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, this is important for those of you who are suffering right now. Because what is Christ saying? He's saying more than their trouble, Jesus knew the truth about the accusers who were stirring up the trouble. And the good news is, Jesus wasn't fooled at all. He knows See, they claimed to be God's people loudly. So we're the chosen ones. We're the, we're the, the, one, the people of promise. And Christ out, just outright rejected their claim. When the text says, those who say that they are Jews and are not, make no mistake, it doesn't mean that these people who are saying this ethnically were not Jews. They probably were. In fact, they most certainly were. They, were. they were the people descended from Abraham, you know, raised in synagogues, learning the law. These people were, ethnically, they were Jews. But what Jesus is saying, he's speaking of a spiritual reality that is confirmed over and over and over in the New Testament. And then that reality is this, is that Jews are no longer regarded as the people of God simply because of nationality or because of birthright. Now, in, in this new covenant time we live in, God's people are defined only by their connection through faith to Jesus Christ. Galatians puts this probably the, the clearest. Galatians 3 verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. What are sons of Abraham? They're Jews. And it, now Paul is saying that it is those not of circumcision or birthright or nationality. He's saying that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now that's not... That, that's not uh, replacing the Jews. What it's doing, it's grafting us into the people of God. It's grafting us into the people who, uh, who can call, claim to be God's people. What was once a national or physical or religious designation is now defined only by faith in Christ, not sacrifices, ceremonies like circumcision, observance of the Mosaic Law. This is what Paul said on that very fact, Philippians chapter 3, for we are the circumcision 
men who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The claims of the Jews in Smyrna were absolutely voided because they rejected the goal of Judaism. They rejected the goal of giving the law, the goal of the promises made to Abraham. And that was what would happen for the whole world through Jesus Christ. Does this matter to us? We don't have a large Jewish population here. I don't know if any of you are ethnically Jewish, but does this matter to us? Certainly it does. Why? Because many in our time, in our day, in our place, place all of their confidence for their salvation in their identity as Americans or Republicans or Baptists or Presbyterians or Methodists or Charismatics. And listen to me, that just won't do. It won't do. It doesn't work. Our only plea for salvation is that we belong to and have believed in Christ, not a denominational affiliation, not a moral superiority or religious works, only that we've trusted in Christ. And to those who trust in other things, Christ promises that He will one day declare, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I love the way that Paul puts this when we talk about who's Jews and who's not and who's believers and who's not. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, But God's firm foundation stands and it bears this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And aren't you glad? Man, I'm glad. It doesn't matter how I feel or, or you know, what my, whether I'm in the right nationality or whatever. The fact of the matter is, I am Christ because Christ saved me, because Christ called me, and He knows who belongs to Him. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. See, but these people claiming to be Jews were not just invalidated in that claim by Christ. Jesus goes further and He identifies them as a synagogue of Satan. Not only do they fail to honor or represent God, they are actually in league with the prince of darkness. And this is the high stakes of not obeying Christ of not following Him and acknowledging Him as Lord. When it comes to Christianity, please hear me. When it comes to Christianity, neutrality is an absolute myth. Many believe that they can earn some brownie points by being religious as long as they're not radical. That they can be a Christian on their own terms. But this is not true according to Jesus. Jesus goes to the rich man and tells him to sell everything and follow him. He commands everyone to love him with all of their heart, all of their mind, all of their soul, all of their strength. He goes to every one of his believers and requires that they carry their own crosses to the death with him. There is no such thing as Christianity light. There's not some monastic subculture of the really spiritual people and then the nominal guys that can work the rest of it off in purgatory someday. You either are a follower of Christ or you are no follower of Christ. And the terms for your discipleship 
that you set, that you define, that are contrary to or less than the gospel demands are, are in actuality to leave the faith that was once for all delivered to the church and to join yourself to the enemy, to become a part of the synagogue of Satan. That's really harsh, Mark. Well, let me give it to you in Jesus' words. In Matthew twelve thirty, He said, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so the first part of this letter offers great comfort that Christ sees it all, that He knows the heavy burden His people are shouldering. He knows who's culpable for their pain and their hardship, and He's identified them accurately. But this knowledge, here's the important part. Everyone says, well, praise God. Jesus knows. Let's go have lunch. But this knowledge does not eliminate the possibility of harder times coming to Smyrna in the near future. Verse 10 says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. I used to, when we'd put the, you know, the text up on the screen at the beginning when somebody would read it, we'd always put, I used to have a little sermon title. I gave up on titles years ago. But, but how would you feel if you came into church and the, and the title of my message today was Do Not Fear What You Are About to Suffer. Hey, happy fourth. But Christ looks at this church and He says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. And if we're honest, truthfully, this is the kind of message that few of us would take comfort in. When we're scrolling through our podcast list of the sermons we want to listen to, we wouldn't stop on the one that says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. We want Joel to tell us how we're not going to suffer. We would prefer to hear, I've seen those who are persecuting you. And I know how hard it's been. And I'm coming quickly to rescue you out of this mess. But that, my friends, is not the message of this letter. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. On the contrary, the church at Smyrna is told that more suffering is coming. And while that fact is true, they're told they are not to fear that reality. They're to take comfort in the fact that one who walks among the lampstands is watching and he knows. And they should know that he is their vindicator as they prepare to suffer for his glory. Verse 10 says, listen to this, he gets really definite here. He didn't say you're going to suffer a pay cut. He just didn't say you're going to suffer a flat tire on the way to work or, or some write-up from your boss. He says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you'll have tribulation. The nature, the purpose, and the duration of their suffering is revealed to them first thing that we're told is that they will be thrown into prison. Now listen, some of you may have an idea of prison. Some of you may have been there or to jail. And, and what you experienced, as much as I would never want to be there, wouldn't want to experience it, what you experienced was luxury compared to a first century prison. First century prisons are nothing like we have today. They were rat and disease uh, uh, ridden torture chambers where many prisoners died of exposure, of hunger and neglect. And the idea of being in a place like that, if I could speak with the prophetic voice like John did to this church, and I could say, guess what guys, this week many of you are going to be thrown into prison by the devil. 
the thought of being in a place like that would strike fear in the absolute bravest of hearts. But the purpose of their imprisonment is actually given to us. The purpose of their imprisonment was that they would be tested. And the testing that the Bible is talking about here has two different aspects. First, it's saying that the character of their faith faith would be disclosed by their hardship. And the question they needed to consider and turn over in their minds is would they pass the test? Second, they would be tested to know how they valued Christ. The question boils down to this. Was Christ worth it all when everything else was gone? Was he worth it? The duration of this test was 10 days. Now, as with most time references in Revelation, it's disputed whether this means 10 days literally or just a short time generally. The point, though, is that this testing would not last indefinitely. But, but you know, when you hear that, you think, okay, 10 days, I can, I can survive that. I can kind of gut that out and make it 10 days. That's not the point. And the next verse tells us that. The point uh, wasn't necessarily positive from a human standpoint. Look at verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. See, 10 days wasn't going to be the doors swing wide and they go on about their merry way. 10 days would mark the end of their earthly existence. They would face death They would be exterminated and executed for the glory of God. This passage makes it appear that their short imprisonment will most certainly end in martyrdom. Why else would they have to be told to be faithful unto death? But all of this is laid out not to prepare believers in Smyrna for the worst. It's not to say, hey guys, got bad news for you. But it's to cause them, everything that he said thus far is to cause them to hope in what is more real, what is more lasting, what is more sure than just the removal of suffering. See, if I had a magic wand this morning and I could you know, say some Harry Potter words and make all your suffering and all your bad times go away, guess what? Probably before too long you'd need me to do it again. The removal of your hard times, the removal of your suffering is temporal. It's always temporary. But God is pointing us to something that's more real, more lasting, more sure than just the removal of suffering. And promises like that can only be trusted when they're given by one who is the first and the last, who died and came to life. At least some of the Smyrna Christians would die holding to the testimony of their faith. But the promise of Christ's resurrection is that death will ultimately have no power over them. His promise to His faithful ones is a crown of life. Now, we saw a similar promise at the end of the the letter to the Ephesians last week. The, The promises at the end of these seven letters are often very significant, very weighty in their symbolism. Last week we read this, and I didn't have time to comment on it, but last week we read, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, the symbol of Ephesus was the palm tree. And and Jesus was saying that if Ephesian believers reject the the tree of culture, the tree of prominence, the tree of power, that they would eat of something that could genuinely satisfy their hunger and that it would do so eternally. I, I mentioned that in Smyrna... 
there was a temple to the goddess Sibeli. And, and she was always depicted wearing a crown. You can look this up online. Always depicted wearing a crown that looked like fortified walls of an ancient city. So think about with that symbolism of giving them a crown of life, what Christ is saying. He's saying that the crown that he would give his people would be a symbol of real and lasting protection, not just walls that can be broken into. So I'll give you something that will never be defeated, never be torn down. He who has an ear to hear, John writes in the words of Jesus, Verse 11, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The Smyrnans had a benefit that likely few of us will have. They knew that the hour of their death was imminent. It's the old story that if you knew you were going to die tomorrow, what would today be like? But you know how this works. Very few of us know we're going to die or when we're going to die. We all know we're going to die, but we think it's never going to happen. And we put it off and we put off thinking about it. But, that, but, the, but the Smyrnans had this benefit. Jesus said, oh yeah, it's coming. It's right around the corner. Yet they were told, don't fear what you're about to suffer. This letter puts death, actual physical death, both for them and for us in the proper perspective. He uses this term, he says, you won't be hurt by the second death. And this points us ahead to another reference, ahead in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 13. This is the description of the day of judgment. And it says, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Many of us are terrified by the thought of our own mortality. That fact I just mentioned, that you are going to die. I turned 50 this week and I'm thinking way more about mortality than I was 10 years ago. But, but more frightening than the fact that we are going to die is the very sobering fact that some of us are going to die twice. The second death. When we breathe our last here in this physical body, there's no more hope for the kind of life we enjoy now. We can't bargain for more time five minutes after our heart and lungs cease to function. If those who trust in Christ will physically rise, physically rise in the resurrection of the just at the last day with new and now incorruptible bodies forever. But see, the second death... We'll see every one of us who have rejected Christ either actively or passively have both the body and the soul confined to the lake of fire and to eternal torment where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth where the fire is not quenched and the worm never dies. It is a place of agony, anguish, decay, and pain. The Smyrnans were promised that through overcoming faithfulness, even to the point of imminent death, that this second death would never hurt them. Even as they bravely faced their own extermination for the glory of their God and of His Christ. Now, let's bring this plane down. Let's, Let's land the plane. 
You might think that this message that I've shared with you from this letter to the Smyrnans has absolutely nothing to do with you. We are not facing, thank God, the same kinds of persecution where people all over the world this morning, while we worship in relative comfort, are facing that that many people before this week is out will be killed just for simply believing in Christ. And we are not facing that right now. But why do you think passages like this are in the Scripture? Can you confidently say that those types of conditions will never hunt you down, that you will never live in a way where you have to choose between faithfulness and life? Are you willing to bet your life on the fact that believers in America will never be persecuted? But that's not, I'm not trying to be all apocalyptic here. That's not even the point. Way more importantly, way more importantly than some idea that some dark cloud might roll over us and we are facing the same types of things, I want you to remember that Paul, in recounting those struggles that he faced when he, when he talked about all the, the suffering and the persecution he experienced, he proclaimed, I die daily. So it's not a matter of waiting for the bad guys to take over so that we can take a bullet for Jesus. The day, the idea is that are you today, when you get up tomorrow and go to work, when you uh, uh, deal with your family, when you do all that you're doing, are you living as a martyr today? Today. Do you know what the word martyr in, in, in scriptures means? It just means a witness. They're interchangeable words, witness and martyr. So are you, are you going with your life and willingness to lay down your life? Are you living as a martyr for Jesus? And let me tell you, this is the right frame of mind for all believers in all places and at all times, no matter where you are. And quite frankly, it's harder for us not being under the specter of actual physical persecution. But it's still the attitude with which we must face every day. Every day should be a day of loosening our grip on this world and tightening our grasp on the next world. We cannot afford, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, to be like those in our culture who are all about getting all we can. So if you would just stand with me, I want to read, uh, before the benediction, I want to read one passage of Scripture over you. And I'm going to ask you, I'm going to be a little bit mystical this morning. I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes, bow your head. I'm not going to ask anybody to raise hands or anything like that. We don't do that here. But I want you to uh, bow your heads and close your eyes because I want you to really not be distracted by people around you, not be distracted by your devices, not be distracted by you know whatever might be happening in here. I want you to hear these words from the Apostle Paul, and I want you to ask yourself, is this the life of faith that I'm living now? And Lord, if not, help me to live this way in the world that I presently live in. Everybody got your heads bowed, eyes closed. Listen carefully to these words. Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order 
that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this comforting message from Revelation, God, that points us away from that which is temporal and transient and passing and moving away and calls us to strengthen our grip on that which is eternal, that which is our hope, that which is our salvation, to strengthen our grip literally on Christ Himself and to take hold of Him. And so, Lord, will You just cause our hearts to long for You and cause our hearts to be convicted when we drift from You, when we grasp the things of this life and the things of this world, God. Help us to live in this life as those who are only passing through it, Lord God, on the way to a much better destination. God, help us to realize that the treasures that this world can give through reputation and money and health, those things are only illusions, Lord God. That it is in it is in embracing tribulation when you call us to, and embracing poverty when you call us to, Lord, that we are rich. And help us to know this, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that is extended to us even when we are the most unfaithful to you. Help us, Lord God, to long for you and to chase after you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I want to just say this quick benediction over you that I think is very appropriate for what we've read today. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, you're dismissed.